While we're here worshiping today, some of you may be already thinking about things you have to do yet today, things that need to get done. Uh, In many ways, even today, when we set it aside to worship, it's not like uh, or unlike other days that we have. We seem to have lives that are filled with things that need to be accomplished. I don't know if you're like me, but I have a honeydew list, and it seems like no matter what I accomplish on that list, it gets longer. Um, The point I'm trying to make is our lives are filled with things that need to be done. And we recognize we've only got 24 hours each day to accomplish them. Part of that time is going to be spent getting the rest that we so desperately need. But during those other hours, we need to make some decisions on which one of the many things that we need to do we're going to be able to accomplish. Even those who enjoy retirement have told me at times, I'm busier now than I ever was when I worked. The point is, it's the tyranny of so much to do and so little time to get it done. And so what we need to do is make some decisions, some choices of what we're going to do first. Now, sometimes for the students who are with us, those decisions are made for you. Get your homework done before you do whatever else it might be. And what we come to realize is we all make those decisions and begin to prioritize that which we need to do first. Back in the late 1980s, a book was written by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of highly effective people. And one of the seven habits that he listed was putting first things first. And the point was, is that in our lives, either by default or more advantageously by choice, we select the things that we're going to give our attention to and do. And if I am going to be one of those effective people, I need to prioritize effectively and avoid wasting time. Otherwise, I'm just governed by the fires that are before me, the urgent things that need to be done. And far too often we find that what really is important and essential gets crowded out. The seven habits of highly effective people include putting first things first. Now, that isn't much different than what we need to recognize as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are filled with many, many responsibilities. And often, seeking to fulfill all of those responsibilities tends to crowd out what is most relevant and most important. I don't know how often, as a pastor, I hear individuals that come and pour their hearts out to me and say, I just don't have the time to be quiet and alone with the Lord. My devotion time seems to be crowded out. 
I'm so weary and tired from all the other things that I'm doing that when I want to be still and just have a time in prayer or reading the word, I find I fall asleep instead of being actively engaged in that process. Well, what I need to recognize is that to be a faithful servant of the Lord, it is imperative that I put first things first. And that isn't just an observation that I make as a shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ, but something that the great shepherd himself says to his followers as is recorded for us in the book of Revelation. I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I'd like to pick up what we looked at last time. And if you remember that this book written by the Apostle John was done so at the specific direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first chapter, we find three times Christ says to him, write specific things. In chapter 1, verse 19, he even gave John the organizational structure for this book. You will notice he said, write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. Interestingly enough, when you come to chapter 4, verse 1, guess what the first phrase is in that opening verse of the fourth chapter? And after these things. And so God gives us the outline for the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is what John already saw. It was the vision of the exalted Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, the churches, the things which are. And beginning in chapter 4, he moves into what will be after these things. Now, when we look at the book of Revelation, we know it's symbolic or filled with symbolism and figures. It's part of the apocalyptic type of literature where God uses visions and symbols to represent truth. But most importantly, what we find in the opening statement made by Jesus Christ in verse 1 of chapter 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, all scripture gives us information about him. But this is specifically the things that he wants us to know and understand. The idea of a revelation is a disclosure. And God is disclosing to us about the things that are yet going to take place. He is disclosing to us the essence of reality. If you and I go through this life and we are ignorant of what God has told us in this word, we tend to have an erroneous view of life and reality itself. But God has pulled back the curtain and through his word he has provided us with an understanding of just what is going on in this world around us. And why are things happening the way they're happening and where is everything going? There's the book of Revelation. It's God pulling back the curtain so we can better understand what's going on in our lives and where this world history is moving and what the intended purpose and result would be. The other thing is that we recognize that in this disclosure that the Lord is the one who has provided us with a message to seven churches. If you look back in verse 11 of chapter 1, again reviewing, he says, write in a book what you see and send it 
to the seven churches. And then he specifies which ones. And so this book was specifically written for the benefit of those seven local congregations. And with that, we know that the Lord was aware of what was going on in each one of those churches. That shouldn't surprise us because he says at the end of chapter 1 that he is the one that is walking in the midst of the lampstands and the lampstands are the churches themselves and he's the one that upholds the messenger that is communicating his truth to those churches. What I need to understand is just as he was aware of what was true of them then, he is aware of what is true of us now. All things are laid open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And when you look at what he says to the seven churches, you will notice that the spirit is the one who is moving in this disclosure so that they would better understand what God has to say to them. Now, what is it that Christ specifically says? Well, notice just a couple of things in our analysis that we see at the beginning that to me is a great comfort for us to recognize about our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Repeatedly, he will say, as is expressed in verse 2 of chapter 2, I know your works. And in that, he's talking about the way we're living our lives and what we're doing. He is well aware of them. It's not a mystery to him. It's not like when we stand before him in glory, he is going to be given information about, well, Joe, what did you do with your life? He is aware of it now. I know your deeds. I know your works. I know what's going on in your life. Now, that can either be an unsettling reality or it can be a great comfort. David would tell us, Human beings think that in a time of darkness, certain things are done and no one's aware of it. But when it comes to God, darkness and light are the same to you. You don't have any secrets from God. I know your works. David would also say, before there's ever a word on my tongue, you already know it. He's the one that discerns between why we're doing what we're doing, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. I know your works. Then look with me over in verse um, 9. Speaking to the church at Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blaspheming of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Not only is Christ fully aware of what we're doing in our lives, what's going on in our inner self as well as our outward actions, he knows the trouble, the problems, the tribulations, the pressures, the persecutions, the difficulties that the child of God faces. That to me is great to know that wherever I am, there is Christ with me. 
He's aware of the persecutions, the things that I face in life. And going hand in hand with that, as he says over in verse 13 to the church at Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. In other words, some places in this world are more evil than other places. But Christ is fully aware of what problems you face, what circumstances you're in, and what you're doing with your life. It's all open before him. And the great comfort is where he said, I will be with you always. We don't go through the things of this world on our own. Now, from that general overview of what he knows, he is the one that selected these seven churches. And it's a reminder to us that these churches actually existed in that historical setting in which when John wrote this book. And whatever is reflected in the message to the church at Ephesus, the church at Pergamum, the church at Thyatira, the church at Philadelphia, that's exactly what was true of them. He was fully aware of what was going on in their individual lives, what they were doing with their lives, what they were thinking and feeling. He was fully aware of the events that were happening around them and the pressures and the troubles that they faced and the opposition at times in their circumstances that would come from the evil one. But out of all of the churches in Asia Minor, which we find in extra-biblical studies, even from some of the things we know of in the Bible itself, there were more than seven churches. He was being very selective because from a biblical standpoint, the number seven provides us with a completeness to whatever is being addressed. And so do we want to know what the church was like in apostolic days? Well, there are seven representatives churches that give us a complete picture of the various local churches and the followers of Jesus Christ in that day. And so they become symbolic. They become representative. And there are different ways that people have, while recognizing their symbolic figurative um, reality, have tried to interpret and understand them. And I just only want to say you can do your own reading and research and maybe grasp whatever view you want to follow. But the one that I think is most satisfying is the fact that they are historical representative churches. In other words, they actually existed in 96 AD when John wrote. But they become a complete picture of the church in every period of church history. And these seven churches give us a complete picture of the reality or the status of the church in our day, in our century. And as we look at that, we recognize that there is a correspondence for us to what is being said. And it isn't that we sit there and think, well, when we read about the church at Ephesus, boy, I can think about so-and-so, and and that's really a good message for them. Or we hear them say something about the church at Thyatira, well, so-and-so ought to be listening to that because that's a good message for them. 
after every message that Christ gives to each one of these churches, he says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So of these seven, the church at Philadelphia ought to pay attention to what he said to the Ephesians. The church in Pergamum ought to listen to what he said to the church at Laodicea. And in the same way, for you and for me today, it's important that we would listen to what God has to say to us about our walk with him. And if we are to be functioning as a New Testament church is to function, we recognize that we have a head to the universal church and the local church, and that head is Jesus Christ. And knowing what he has to say about us is what is most important. Now with that, what I find is in five of the seven churches, not all seven, but in five of the seven churches, he gives a warning. He says, watch out. He says, think about this. He says, but I have this against you. And therefore, it becomes imperative for us to listen to what cautions the Lord Jesus Christ has to give to his followers so that we do not fall prey to the things that have happened to God's people throughout the history of the church. If there is anything we learn from history, it's that people don't learn from history. You've heard that, right? And if there is anything we learn from church history, is that the people of God are prone to repeat the same mistakes and problems again and again and again. That we need to have ears to hear that Christ is laying things out for us because you and I live in a world that is hostile to grace. You and I live in a reality where we have an adversary who is stalking around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You and I live in a world where if we don't take up the full armor of God, we're not going to be able to stand in the evil day and having done all things to stand. We need to listen to the warnings that Christ gave to these ancient churches and to recognize that they're beneficial for us to understand today. The history of the church has been God stirring up individuals who say, boy, we've really drifted far from where the orientation was in the teachings of the apostles. And we need to get back to those basics. And just because something starts on a good foundation with a zealous zeal for the things of God doesn't mean it's going to continue there for year after year after year. So with that, we look at the church at Ephesus. And I want you to know that the church at Ephesus was a church that had much to which it was commended. Verse 2 of chapter 2, I know your deeds, I know your toil, your labor, and your perseverance, and you can't 
endure evil men. You put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles, they're not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So you think about the church at Ephesus. The first thing we would say is there was an orthodoxy to this church. They were following apostolic teaching. The second thing is that this group of individuals had a real discernment on what is truth and what is false. You've tested those who say they're apostles. Now, we live in a day where we tend to think, well, the early church, they had Peter and they had Paul and they had Matthew and they had James, etc., and the other apostles. And boy, what a blessing it was. But they also had many false apostles who tried to promote things that seemed to be very close to the genuine article but were deficient. And that's why when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he reminded them, we shouldn't be surprised that there are many false apostles who have gone out into the world because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light that he might deceive the hearts of of the unsuspecting. This church not only was devoted to the apostles' teaching, are you back with me in Acts chapter 2? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. They were in keeping with the design that God had given to the church. This was a church group that had real spiritual discernment. Now, in some ways, we can recognize how God had blessed the church at Ephesus. It had benefited from the teaching of the Apostle Paul, right? There's its foundation. It had benefited from those that Paul left behind, like Timothy. And what we find is it had benefited from the teaching ministry, even of the Apostle John himself, for many years. This was a well-favored, beneficial ministry that was given to the church at Ephesus, and they had a discernment between what was in keeping with the new covenant teaching of the apostles and what, although it looked good and genuine, was deficient and false. But these were not just individuals that had intellectual understanding. These were individuals who put that intellectual understanding and the truth of God into practice. Notice he says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your labors. And in fact, you've been zealously engaged in them and you've persevered. And that term to persevere means even though there was opposition, you didn't give up. You didn't throw in the towel. And and in spite of the many sacrificial hours of labor in the name of Christ, you didn't grow weary. This was a church that was characterized by a great zeal in seeking to do what God has called his people to do. And they were characterized by a zealous, sacrificial service seeking to do what is in keeping with God's word and recognizing the falsehood of those who came purported to be the servants of Christ but were 
wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers, false apostles, false brethren. Now I have to pause for a moment. We've lost that understanding in our culture. We think just because someone says they're Christian, just because someone teaches at a seminary, just because someone is a pastor in a church, just because someone made a profession of faith, they got to be the genuine article. We don't have the discernment of the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus recognized we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. The church at Ephesus understood the reality that Satan is always working to seek to undermine truth and to just get a little toehold, just to get his foot in the door, just to have the beginning so that suddenly things can be deviating from the truth. Now, those... um, who have been involved in the Air Force or the Navy and traveled across seas or over the skies, they know if I start my mission one degree off, who knows where I'm going to end up. Just that small little deviation from what is the line that I am to pursue means that I can be hundreds of miles, thousands of miles off target depending on how far I'm traveling. And so it is with just that subtle little deviation that can make such a difference. I can understand why Christ commended the church at Ephesus. They were examples to others of an adherence to God's truth as it was communicated through the apostles. They were an example of putting into practice what God said is to be true of his people. They were examples of tirelessness, sacrificial, zealous devotion to the work of the Lord. In reality, they were fulfilling that admonition that Paul gave to the Corinthians where he told them after he spoke about the resurrection of Christ and the eternal state, therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But Christ sees things much differently than we do. We need to be a church of orthodoxy. We need to be a local church of spiritual discernment. We need to be a church that is characterized by relentless, zealous, sacrificial devotion to the work of the Lord. But more importantly, we need to be a church that heeds the warning that Christ gave. I can be doing all those right things, but I have this against you. Jesus said, as is recorded for us in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The way it is structured in the Greek text, the emphasis is on first love. It says, I have this against you, 
love, your first love, you've left, you've abandoned. So remember, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Look at things differently. Recognize that even though I have all of these commendable things and do the deeds which you did at first. So he's not saying stop being active. He's not saying don't be characterized by sacrificial devotion. He's not saying don't persevere, don't hang in there. He's not saying don't uh, or become tired in doing the things of the Lord. He's saying, do the deeds you did at the first or else I'm coming and I'll remove your lampstand. So now we need to think about what is he talking about? Your first love. Well, this idea of first love means that which is principal, that which is primary. And it's the Greek word agape, that which is your devotion that which is your decision, that which is your volitional determination of what you're going to do. In other words, he's saying to the church at Ephesus, you know what your problem is? You're not putting first things first. I can be so busy in doing the right thing that in the midst of it all, I lose my adoration and devotion and love to Christ. doesn't mean I don't love him anymore. It's not much different than a parent who says, you know, I don't know what's wrong with my kids. I work and slave to give them all the things that they have. Surely they should know I love them. The reality is it's time with them. It becomes more important. When Kathy and I first got married, one of the things that concerned her was I was not a student. I didn't spend a lot of time reading, and it's probably pretty apparent now because of the fact that that wasn't an occupation in my life to be devoted to reading and language, etc. I thought, I don't want to read about what somebody else is doing in life. I want to experience it. I want to see what I can learn and and do. And when God was pleased to give me eternal life, one of the most radical changes that took place is I had an insatiable desire to learn and study. Revolutionary change. And... It occupied day and night time hours. And there were times when Kathy felt a little neglected. And I became aware of that, so I went and bought her candy. Or I bought her some flowers. I'll see you. And I was back studying. Thankfully, a brother in Christ came to me and said, you know, Joe, Kathy doesn't need your flowers, doesn't need your candy. 
It's you. And there's the principle. We can get so busy doing the right things that we don't spend the time with the person that we say we're doing them for. And so in my ministry, early in our time in San Antonio, a godly elder told me, one of the things you need to watch out for, Joe, is that if the evil one can't divert you from your biblical orientation to immorality, etc., he's going to get you so busy, you don't really have the personal time for the Lord. What is it that's usually crowded out in our busy days? Just that time to be still and to remember he's God. And what else happens is all of a sudden we start to feel a little guilty, especially if you grew up and that, you know, worth and value was found in work ethic. And you're sitting here thinking, I'm not really accomplishing anything. I'm just kind of sitting here. Well, spending that time sitting here, adoring the Savior, learning more of him is more important than anything you'll ever do. Have you put first things first in your daily life? Or are you in that hurry to get things done where you're moving so fast that life is no fun? Are you taking satisfaction and look at all the things I'm doing in the name of Christ when what you really need to do is set aside the dishes like Mary did because she and Martha were both busy making preparations. Which one of the two, both of whom Jesus loved, did he commend? Mary has chosen the more important or the better part, and she'll receive her reward. What is it God wants from us? Not our labors. We have that misguided perception. God's work is not going to get done if we don't do something. I I even hear some of the popular Christian hymns, you know. I ask God, why don't you do something? And what he says is, get on with it. God is doing things. God has ordained to use us to accomplish his purpose and bring eternal benefit into the lives of people. And how is it done? By grace alone. And what I need to recognize is that while I am engaged in my activities, I need to be sure that it never crowds out what God really wants of me, and that is to love and adore him. Remember what he told Peter? Peter, do you love me? Then do the sheep feeding. The motive 
for why I do what I do is because of loving devotion to Christ. And what I need to be sure is that the things that need to get done each day, no matter how necessary and good they are, ever hinder and adversely affect the time I'm just alone with the Lord. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. As a new Christian, we don't maybe know all of the doctrinal truths. We bumble and stumble when we tell people about the Savior because we're not precise maybe in how we present the gospel. But oh, let me tell you about Jesus. It's no burden to talk about him because I love him. It's no burden to do these activities. They're not a sacrificial demand. When you do things for someone you love, you're not counting how much it costs you to do them. You find delight in knowing that what you're doing pleases him or her. And so it is with God. What God wants more than anything else is our adoration, praise, and love for him. So here's the perspective. We won't get to the next part today, but that we need to take away from this. Paul writing to the Philippians. What is it he said moved and motivated him every day? I know he said for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I know he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you know what his driving motivation was? That I may know him. Is your objective today to know Jesus Christ, the triune God, better today than you knew him yesterday? Is your burning desire that you're cultivating your personal relationship with him? Is he really your primary priority, your first love, right? You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. What's the greatest of all commandments? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The totality of your being devoted to him in worship. Or if I listen to the Apostle Peter, he didn't say it any differently. Not that he talked about his burning desire, but what he said needs to be true of God's people. But grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ the Lord. Your top priority, the first thing first for today is to come into his presence, to sit at his feet, to worship and adore him to express to him the joy you have the love you have the amazement that you even are called a child of God and are privileged to call him your heavenly father through Jesus Christ the Lord if you're a child of God it's by his doing that you're in Christ Jesus
and nothing, no matter how good, beneficial, spiritual, eternal, can ever take the place of just sitting at his feet and adoring him. Life is filled with so much to do. And one of the seven habits of effective people and certainly one of the most critical habits for God's people is to put first things first. And it isn't what we're doing. First things first is who we're loving and adoring. Even Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you so much, Father, for the privilege. Oh, Lord, even though we were children of wrath, even as the rest, you who are rich in mercy when we were dead in our sins made us alive in Jesus Christ. And you have brought us to yourself that we might behold your glory, that we might give you the worship, the praise, the gratitude, and the thanksgiving that you deserve. That, Father, we might have an effectual, emotional love for our God who is the object of our being, that in Jesus Christ the Lord, we may give you all the praise that you deserve. Father, for where it's needed, help us to remember from where we've fallen. If the busyness of life and even the busyness of Christian service has caused us to leave our first love, to not have that joyful, grateful, worshipful delight in the Lord our God. For truly, Lord, you deserve and are worthy of all of our praise, the essence of of our being through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.